welcome to Autocracy Now, the show about the lives of famous autocrats. This episode, Stalin Episode 2, Revolution and Civil War. Alfred Henry Lewis in 1906 said, There are only nine meals between mankind and anarchy. In Petrograd, the capital of the Russian Empire, in the winter of 1917, his theory was put to the test. The city was gripped by the coldest winter for several years, and as the transport system buckled under the twin strains of winter and war, bakeries were forced to close due to lack of flour. It would be perfectly possible to queue all day for a loaf of bread, only to be turned away when none was available. People think of queuing as a British pastime, but the Russians really perfected it. On the 19th of February, amidst swirling rumours that the shortages were due to hoarders or some malevolence on the part of the government, the Tsarist authorities announced that bread would be rationed. On the 23rd of February, it was International Women's Day, a traditional day of protest, and minus 5 degrees Celsius, positively roasting for a Russian winter. The mild weather encouraged the Women's March, and soon, the usual parade of students and intelligentsia were joined by striking textile workers from a local factory. They dragged husbands, boyfriends and admirers along with them, and soon enough, a 100,000 workers were on the streets in protest, yelling for bread. This is a far cry from the disciplined, ruthless group of ideological fanatics that Lenin and the Bolsheviks had hoped to cultivate. It was a mob. It was a bread riot. In society, we are kept in our place by the behaviour of those around us, and urged to conform, even if we think of ourselves as rebellious. These social norms are like a rotting beam that supports a bridge. The erosion, the damage is subtle and takes place over time. In the case of the Russian Revolution, decades of political repression, a long war, and a government that had lost the loyalty and respect of the people, these were some of the sources of the rot. When the end comes, it comes quickly and suddenly, a catastrophic buckling, a snap. Suddenly, everyone around you, rather than going about their lives in a docile way, is rioting. Suddenly the rules no longer seem to apply. I think we've all been in a situation at some point where we felt suddenly, for whatever reason, that things had gone past the point of no return. You feel logic and order fall away, and underneath, there is chaos. Orlando Fige wrote a book about the Russian Revolution called The People's Tragedy that I urge you to read. It's full of those wonderful first-hand accounts that remind us that historical figures and events aren't just lists of dates and actions, but that any event, especially a revolution, contains many personal stories and details that anchor us to the past by reminding us of the humanity of those involved. He quotes an agitator in his book, The People's Tragedy, about the Russian Revolution, which gives you a sense of the feel of the occasion. Quote, Comrades, he urged, if we cannot get a loaf of bread for ourselves in a righteous way, we must solve our problems by force. Arm yourselves with everything possible, bolts, screws, rocks, and go out of the factory and start smashing the first shops you find. End quote. As 150,000 workers marched the next day, a British journalist described a sense of rather precarious excitement, like a bank holiday with thunder in the air. I love the fact that a British person witnesses a revolution and can think of no better comparison than a bank holiday. By the third day of protests, clashes with the police had turned the mood uglier, and any holiday atmosphere was drowned out by shouts of Down with the Tsar! Down with the war! For their part, the Tsarist forces and the Cossacks remembered the horror of Bloody Sunday in 1905. Many of them no longer felt such intense loyalty to the Tsar that they would fire on their own people. Indeed, in one case, the Cossacks, who had long been the symbol of Tsarist government oppression, intervened to defend the protesters against the armed police. Now, it's possible at this stage that this could have ended as a mere bread riot, which would have been resolved once the supply situation improved. Except, of course, Nicholas II, hearing of the riots by telegram, ordered the use of military force to put down the riots. This, more than anything else, illustrates that they had a point when they thought of him as out of touch. Indeed, when the riots started, his diary entry for that day famously doesn't mention them at all, 
although it does mention the number of people at breakfast and the fact that he played dominoes in the evening. Like many autocrats, his absolute power made it easy for him to become absolutely isolated. Away at his home near the front, surrounded by yes-men, no one forced him to realise the gravity of the situation. The use of force was, of course, the tipping point, just as it had been in 1905. Petrograd authorities building up military forces in the city was a little bit like throwing gasoline onto some kindling and then chain-smoking next to the pile. Some kind of flashpoint was inevitable. It happened when an officer of a regiment, unable to get his young, nervous and probably not all that loyal soldiers to fire on the crowd, showed them how it was done. Fifty lay dead after the officer's shooting spree, and it was Bloody Sunday all over again. Except this time, the real psychological effect was not on the crowds, but on the soldiers. They wanted no part in this. Many of them had been conscripted into the army during the war. A lot of the junior officers were practically students, liberal, well-educated, with romantic notions of revolution and justice. They remind me of my friends. Fige has a wonderful quote from one of them, who accounts for how he persuaded 5,000 soldiers to mutiny. Quote, I don't know what happened to me. I was lying on a couch in the barracks and reading a book by Haldane. I was so absorbed in it that I didn't hear shouts and roars coming from the street. A wild bullet broke the window near my couch. The Cossacks were firing on defenceless and unarmed crowds, striking people with their whips, crushing the fallen with their horses. And then I saw a young girl trying to evade the galloping horse of a Cossack officer. She was too slow. A severe blow on her head brought her down under the horse's feet. She screamed. It was her inhuman, penetrating scream that caused something in me to snap. I jumped up on the table and cried out wildly, Friends! Friends! Long live the revolution! To arms! They are killing innocent people, our brothers and sisters! Later, they said there was something in my voice that made it impossible to resist my call. They followed me without realising where or in the name of what cause they went. They all joined me in the attack against the Cossacks and the police. We killed a few of them. The rest retreated. By night, the fight was over. The revolution had become a reality, and I... Well, I returned that same night to my book by Haldane. End quote. Once the soldiers had deserted, there was no going back. After all, if the Tsar regained control, they would surely be killed under martial law. Revolution was inevitable. Now, this was not the organised Marxist workers' revolution of the Bolsheviks, although workers were present. It was not the glorious, peaceful, liberal, democratic revolution that the intellectuals dreamed of. Indeed, one professor who came out onto the streets to celebrate the victory of the revolution he preached about for so long was promptly punched in the head, and had his watch stolen by some rioters. Four days after the riot started, the Tsarist regime was effectively over. By the 2nd of March, only a week after the initial riots, the Tsar was told in no uncertain terms that it was game over for him and his regime. Nicholas II was autocratic and repressive, but you get the feeling from reading history that his heart was never quite in it. Certainly he seemed to accept the end of his reign when it came, very calmly. There was an interestingly stubborn note to Nicholas II's autocracy. He doesn't strike you as wanting to conserve absolute power because he thought he was the only man who could govern Russia, or because he was ambitious, or even necessarily because he thought he was divinely appointed or wanted the job. After 1905, he could easily have gradually become a constitutional monarch, giving more and more power to the Duma and taking a back seat like many of the other European monarchs had done. His family could have retained their status in the veneer of authority and been perfectly well-liked. Stilipin and others could have governed the country much more competently in his stead. But he was motivated by an immense, perhaps naive and misplaced, belief in the order of things. Maybe in part it's caused by a sense of duty. After all, this might have been what motivated the ultimately foolish decision to go to the front, where all the war failures were blamed on him, and he did nothing to remedy the view that he was out of touch in Petrograd. A little compromise, and he could have maintained his grip on power. 
but he had sworn an oath never to compromise the powers of the crown. He attempted to pass the throne on to his brother, the Grand Duke Mikhail, but he had been in the capital when the rioting took place. His train of thought was probably less, I must nobly carry the burden borne by my brother, and more, there is no way you're pinning this one on me, thanks but no thanks. After meeting with some of the leaders of the Duma, he too abdicated, and the line of accession was brought to an end. The dream that Stalin had dreamt since he was a schoolboy was now a reality. The monarchy had fallen. So the February Revolution had a surprising lack of Bolsheviks. In fact, like the 1905 revolution, it's fair to say that it took them all by surprise. Lenin was quoted as saying in January that, quote, some of us old men will not live to see the revolution, end quote. A month later, and the Tsar was gone. Stalin got the news by telegram. He was still in his Siberian exile. And the immediate consequences of the February Revolution were not the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat that the Marxists predicted. In fact, when all of the dust settled, February was a big victory for the liberal reformers in the Duma. Chief amongst these was the Constitutional Democrat, or Cadet Party. The Prime Minister was a cadet, Prince Lvov. Of the cabinet, only Alexander Kerensky belonged to the Socialist Revolutionary Party, and he was a moderate. Bolsheviks and Mensheviks weren't really represented in the new, provisional government at all, or at least not at first. Of course, as with many revolutions, the government that takes power must immediately attempt to deal with the many crises that made the old government so unpopular. Throwing the transition to a democratic government for a state that had only known autocracy, and it's clear that the provisional government had shaky authority at best. With change in the air, albeit that, again, a revolution had taken everyone by surprise, Lenin, Stalin and the rest of the Bolsheviks rushed back from their various places of exile to get to Petrograd. Lenin in particular was arriving in a country he barely knew. This man, who by the end of the year will be the dictator in charge of Russia, had spent the last 17 years in exile abroad. He moved almost exclusively in the circles of intellectuals and professional revolutionaries. Aside from two years as a lawyer, he'd never had a real job. Perhaps it was partly for this reason that Lenin saw in Stalin, who had at least lived amongst the people, and come from humble origins in Gori, as a useful figure to promote. Unfortunately for Stalin, the years of Siberian exile had caused him to drift slightly to the periphery of the Bolsheviks. When he returned from exile, stepping off the train into the light snow of Petrograd in March, there was no welcoming party from his fellow revolutionaries. The Bolsheviks had fallen to internal squabbling again, this time about whether to cooperate with the new provisional government, or seek to overthrow it immediately. Eventually, Stalin, along with Lev Kamenev and some other allies, seemed to win out in the dispute. They would, at least for the short term, cooperate with the provisional government while putting constant pressure on the system through the Soviets. These workers' councils were hotbeds of radicalism. Petrograd Soviet was a powerful organisation in the city in its own right and stood quite apart from the mechanisms of the provisional government. In fact, the year 1917 can be seen as a power struggle between the institution of the provisional government and the Petrograd Soviet of workers and deputies. Stalin himself summarised the uneasy tension that existed in the city. Quote, there were two currents in motion from below and above that put forward two alternative governments, the provisional government supported by Anglo-French capital and the Soviet of soldiers and workers' deputies. Power was divided between these two organs, and neither of them had the fullness of power. Tensions between them exist and cannot help to exist. End quote. It doesn't seem like Stalin and Kamenev were really willing to settle for constitutional democracy. Rather, this was playing the long game. They wanted to wait until the provisional government was totally discredited, paint them as bourgeoisie and associated with foreign powers, and, in the role of an official opposition, gradually turn public opinion over to their side. This would be easier than under the Tsars, because the liberal provisional government would have to allow freedom of speech and dismantle the Tsars' secret police. It would also help the Bolsheviks to pull over some of the Mensheviks to their side, those that became dissatisfied with the government over time. 
promising land to the peasants would help get them on side. The provisional government wanted to continue the war. Stalin saw that the political gains could be made by being the only party that backed an end to the war. Unfortunately for them, there was one person who disagreed with this strategy. Lenin. When he returned to Petrograd, he was furious, viewing the revolution as an opportunity missed. The provisional government should have been toppled immediately while it was still weak. He immediately went round ensuring that the Bolsheviks towed the line of his radical political beliefs. Stalin, understanding who the true leader of the movement was, ditched the policies of cooperation he'd previously espoused, and returned to following Lenin's orders to the letter. In return for this, he'd be rewarded. With Lenin's recommendation, he was in April elected to the Central Committee of the Bolsheviks. The nature of Stalin's role in the party was interesting. He was not a charismatic orator. In fact, many people found it difficult to understand his thick Georgian accent. Nor at this stage was he a natural leader of men. People didn't see him as especially likeable. His political ideas weren't profound and they didn't attract a particular following. People might identify as Leninists or Trotskyists after the ideologies of these Marxist leaders, but Stalin never contributed to revolutionary theory in this way, at least not until much later. He did not have a faction of followers who were swayed by his charisma. Indeed, some saw him as a grey blank, dull but loyal and dependable. Stalin turned this to an advantage and began to accumulate administrative powers, the boring behind-the-scenes roles in the party that would later turn out to be crucial. Robert Service described his position in this way, quote, His position in the Bolshevik Central Committee was firmly held, but he had next to no political authority outside of its framework. He was one of the most influential yet obscure of the Bolsheviks. If he died in September 1917, no one would have written his biography. In July, the provisional government cracked down on the Bolsheviks after they organised a huge political demonstration that was probably supposed to turn into a revolution, amongst soldiers, sailors and workers. Lenin and other Bolshevik leaders fled. Trotsky, Kamenev and others were arrested. The leadership of the party during July fell to Stalin and one Sverdlov, who were the only Central Committee members left standing. His time in the limelight was brief, but he clearly relished it, delivering the main speeches at the Sixth Party Congress and engaging in lively debates over the future of socialism. In the meantime, the provisional government staggered on, struggling to address the familiar problems of the war and the shortages. A catastrophic summer offensive on the front, costing the lives of 400,000 and causing maybe 2 million to desert the army, further discredited the provisional government. Every failure for the war effort was a bonus for the Bolsheviks, Stalin and Kamenev having correctly predicted the political necessity of being anti-war. The vast number of soldiers in the trenches were peasants. They didn't really have a place in Marxist philosophy beyond Lenin's vague promise of land for them. The intellectual contortions of socialism were of little concern, but peace was something they could get behind. People probably expected far too much after the February Revolution, and were quickly growing disillusioned with the new boss, same as the old boss. The liberals were losing support to more radical, socialist opposition, and responded by doubling down on their patriotism, hoping to galvanise Russian society with a patriotic war. Politics was becoming more and more polarised, and as we all know, this often ends with extremism of some kind or another. Now Kerensky, originally the only socialist in the government, was Prime Minister and ordered the offensive. Apparently he also modelled himself on Napoleon, which was a little bit grandiose for a guy who was in charge for a few months, and is most famous for botching pretty much everything he touched. He, with pretty good reason, doubted that the troops in Petrograd were really loyal to the provisional government, and thought that, if there was a mass demonstration, he might suffer the same fate as the Tsar, with mass desertions ending his reign. His solution was to ask General Kornilov, who was on the front lines, to bring troops from the front line to the city, hoping to reinforce his power by authoritarian means, and remove the Petrograd Soviet as a power rival. At the last minute, though, it seems like Kerensky freaked out over the fact that a whole bunch of soldiers of dubious loyalty were marching towards the city. 
Maybe Kornilov wanted to install himself as military dictator and do away with the Soviet and the provisional government? Panicking now, Kerensky ordered Kornilov to remain at the front lines. Kornilov ignored this and carried on marching towards the city. So Kerensky, conspiring to avoid being deposed by a coup, might have triggered a coup. Which wasn't the smartest move. The upshot of this for the Bolsheviks was that he needed their popular socialist agitators to persuade soldiers not to join the coup. Kerensky had to align himself with the forces of the Soviet against the marching general. This worked and Kornilov was arrested, but at the same time Lenin had been freed and his Bolsheviks were armed. So, in summary, Kerensky was afraid of a coup, so he accidentally triggered a coup, and in the course of foiling that coup, he sowed the seeds for a future Bolshevik coup. The guy had a lot of enemies. His days were numbered, and the Bolsheviks were now determined to be the ones that ended his rule. The question was when. Lenin was constantly badgering the Bolsheviks to start the revolution and seize power by force, as he had always dreamed. Stalin, his loyalties fully determined, stood by Lenin. Only Kamenev and Zinoviev really remained on the side of caution, and Stalin denounced them, saying, What they propose merely gives the counter-revolution time to get organised. We'll go on to an endless retreat and lose the entire revolution. He was a true believer. When he edited the party's newspaper, the edition before the day they seized power, his editorial was stark. If you all act solidly and staunchly, no one will dare resist the will of the people. Yet Stalin was not hugely involved in the events of the 25th of October 1917. Prior to the revolution, he'd stayed awake for five days straight, frantically working, writing and coordinating. But the actual planning of the military coup was mainly down to Trotsky. From their headquarters in the Smolny Institute, which had previously been a private school for noble schoolgirls, they coordinated the activities. Although future Soviet propaganda would romanticise this event, Workers and soldiers storming the Winter Palace, that symbol of Tsarist and bourgeois oppression. The coup was small-scale enough that lots of Petrograd residents barely even noticed it. For a building that had been stormed, there was only one broken window in the Winter Palace. The provisional government had even fewer loyal backers than the Tsarist regime had in February, and most of the defenders had dejectedly deserted long ago. In the end, Kerensky tried to call some soldiers to his aid by forging the signature of the Soviet leaders. When he tried to leave the Winter Palace to rendezvous with them, he found that he could not. Bolsheviks controlled the railways, and the provisional government couldn't even find him a taxi. He had to leave the city in a stolen car. The ministers left behind in their attempts to defend the Winter Palace couldn't even find a floor plan of the building, and accidentally left one of the doors unguarded. For the provisional government, it was barely even a whimper. For the Bolsheviks, it would require a lot of propaganda to dress this up as a glorious, revolutionary struggle. And the rest of Russia hardly shared enthusiasm for Bolshevik rule. Again from Orlando Fige, the reaction of the mob in Petrograd is priceless. Quote, when the Bolsheviks took control of the Winter Palace, they discovered one of the largest wine cellars ever known. During the following days, tens of thousands of antique bottles disappeared from the vaults. The Bolshevik workers and soldiers were helping themselves to Chateau de Chem 1847, the last Tsar's favourite vintage, and selling off the vodka to the crowds outside. The drunken mobs went on the rampage. The Winter Palace was badly vandalised. Shops and liquor stores were looted. Soldiers and sailors went around the well-to-do districts, robbing apartments and killing people for sport. The Bolsheviks tried in vain to stem the anarchy by sealing off the liquor supply. They appointed a commissar of the Winter Palace, who was constantly drunk on the job. They posted guards from the cellar, who licensed themselves to sell off the bottles of liquor. They pumped the wine out into the street, but crowds gathered to drink it from the gutter. They tried to destroy the offending treasure, to transfer it to the Smolny, and even to ship it to Sweden, but all their efforts came to nothing. Hundreds of drunkards were thrown into jail until there was no more room in the cells. Machine guns were set up to deter the looters by firing over their heads, and sometimes at them, but still the looters came. 
For several weeks the anarchy continued, martial law was even imposed, until, at last, the alcohol ran out with the old year, and the capital woke up with the biggest hangover in history. End quote. Again, the idea that the whole country had suddenly become fanatical communist radicals is very far from the anarchic reality. The October Revolution is really an amazing example from human history about what can happen when a group of people who've never previously held any kind of political or military authority suddenly take charge. There is a story of the Bolsheviks early on, attempting to take control of the state bank and seize all the funds inside. They were held up for weeks by the bank officials who refused to recognise their authority and had to send armed men in to seize the assets. They were robbing the bank of the state they now claimed to govern. Overnight, they went from writing about revolution and debating the finer points of their politics in the ballroom of the Smolny Institute to attempting to run one of the largest countries in the world at a time when the worst war known was raging. The Bolsheviks had temporary, nominal control over Petrograd for now, but they needed to consolidate power and fast. Outside the city, other forces were massing. They risked being toppled just as easily as they'd toppled the provisional government and ending up as footnotes in history. A great deal of the autocracy that would become associated with Stalin was really established in the early years of Bolshevik rule, as they desperately tried to maintain this tenuous grip on power. A new secret police was established to replace the Okhrana, called the Cheka. It would soon employ nearly a quarter of a million people, and while no one will ever know how many people were repressed and killed by the secret police, it's likely to be in the hundreds of thousands. Lenin knew that he could maintain a degree of order by dividing his enemies. The workers were turned against the wealthy, in some ways, encouraging the initial anarchy as they attempted to consolidate power helped the Bolsheviks. Peasants were encouraged to seize the property of their landlords. Once landlords had been disposed with, kulaks or wealthy peasants were demonised. A good example was the people's courts that sprang up, where grievances against the bourgeois could turn into violent retribution. In one of them, simply having soft hands, not the hands of a worker, was a death sentence. Power was devolved to local organisations like the Soviets. With old hierarchies destroyed, People focused on their own internal disputes, and central resistance was harder to organise. The civil servants that opposed the Bolshevik coup were arrested. Violence was used to intimidate opponents. The free press that had existed in Russia for such a short time was brutally attacked and tightly controlled. First the cadet party, then the socialist revolutionaries were branded enemies of the people and outlawed. Enemies of the people, that's a phrase. Next time you hear it used, think very carefully about which people they're really enemies of. By December, Lenin was starting to announce that the Constituent Assembly, the Russian Parliament, was no longer necessary. After all, the Bolsheviks controlled the state, and the Bolsheviks were the people. By January, it had been abolished. The brief flowering of democracy in Russia was choked down. Stalin, for his part, was made the minister in charge of nationalities. Between them, Lenin and Stalin hatched a plan to co-opt some of the national nationalist forces in places like Ukraine and Georgia. They promised that, under a Bolshevik government, people would have the right to self-determination, a popular phrase at the time. This wasn't so much out of a desire to see nations secede from Russia, but rather they hoped to charm them into backing Bolshevik rule in the coming civil war. Around this time, there is an episode that illustrates the type of personality that Stalin had beneath the grey-blank surface. A Menshevik, Martov, published an article criticising many Bolsheviks, including implicating Stalin in that bank robbery. Since about a million socialist articles were being published a day at this point, Stalin could easily have ignored the criticism, after all, didn't the dashing, daring-do of a bank robbery just add to his stature? But his personal sense of honour would not allow it. He dragged Martov through the courts for libel, until his name was cleared by a court of Bolshevik cronies. In the course of defending himself, Martov brought up more embarrassing episodes from Stalin's past. Like many narcissists who hit back at their critics, Stalin being hypersensitive meant that far more people heard about the allegations than would have done otherwise. And, 
Years later, when Lenin asked him to transfer funds for medical care of the dying Martov, Stalin refused to do so. He never forgave and he never forgot. In the meantime, the global socialist revolution that the wildest Bolshevik optimists had predicted once they seized power had not materialised. Lenin and Stalin aligned against Trotsky. The former were willing to conclude a separate peace with Germany, while Trotsky took a strange position of continuing a revolutionary war and hoping that uprisings in other countries would follow. Stalin in particular launched a few blistering attacks on Trotsky, and already the rivalry between the two was clear. In this case, Lenin and Stalin won out, and a separate peace was negotiated in March of 1918. The terms were very harsh towards the Russians. The German negotiators had recognised that the Bolshevik position was very precarious. They could not rely on the loyalty of their own army, having promised peace. Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia would all be ceded to Germany and Austria-Hungary. It was a humiliating peace, and the problems for the Bolsheviks were only just beginning. As Trotsky, who was put in charge of the military, began constructing a new Red Army, rebellious and counter-revolutionary forces started springing up all over Russia. General Kornilov escaped from prison, led one force, the Volunteer Army. Admiral Kolchak organised a coup in Omsk, and an army quickly began to spring to his banner. These armies gradually became known as the White Armies, but the Russian Civil War and the endlessly fascinating conflict had room for more colours still. In Ukraine, Nestat Makhno led an insurgent anarchist army, sometimes called the Black Army. Various nationalists and countries that had strained under Russian rule saw their chance to seize independence, and these forces were called Green Armies. And to make matters even more complicated, a coalition of international forces briefly intervened in the war. After all, although Russia had been their ally against the Germans, few of these countries liked the idea of a socialist state that preached about international revolution, controlling one of the great powers in Europe. So at one point, there were British, French, US, Canadian, Japanese and Chinese forces briefly fighting alongside the White Armies against the Bolsheviks. Now, they never really committed enough troops or manpower to make a real difference, but it emphasises the incredible precariousness of the Bolshevik position. The Bolsheviks constantly believed that they had enemies on all sides, and during the Russian Civil War, they were right. This is another one of those sections that could easily have an entire podcast to itself. I have to restrain myself, or this would just be a thousand-part series about Russian history. So to focus on Stalin's role, he was assigned to the south around the Volga region, which was where the vast majority of food was produced that was still in Bolshevik hands. This region was crucial for them to maintain their grip on power, and Stalin recognised this, demanding military support, saying that the food question and the military question are inextricably linked. The absence of a scrap of paper from Trotsky won't stop me. He expanded his role well beyond simply securing the supplies of food, purging the Red Army and ensuring it was full of people who owed their positions to him. It was just as much about ensuring personal supremacy in the region, taking advantage of the chaos and the fact that he had Lenin's favour, as it was ensuring he did a good job. This was the first flash of real authority that Stalin obtained. Not just a member of some committee, not just a lackey for Lenin, not just the editor of a newspaper or the man in charge of administrative jobs. Now there were soldiers who obeyed his personal command, and all of the hallmarks of his means of government started to manifest themselves. His conflict with Trotsky, who was still in charge of the military overall, continued, with Stalin constantly writing letters to Lenin denouncing Trotsky. The concept of terror had been bandied about by the Bolsheviks as possibly, initially necessary, to take power. It would become synonymous with the reign of Stalin. Perhaps he viewed himself as more pragmatic, more realistic, than the isolated ivory tower intellectuals like Lenin. He believed that the peasants would only cooperate and be conscripted into the army if they were persuaded by brute force. Against his white enemies, he was equally brutal. There was an incident where he sacked old Tsarist leaders from the army and held them on a barge over the river Volga. He railed against them, accusing them of a conspiracy against the Red Army, attempting to aid the whites. If he hadn't been stopped by orders from Moscow, it's believed he intended to sink the barge with all of the commanders on board. 
The river runs through the city where Stalin was based. Then it was called Tsaritsyn, now it was called Volgograd. But it is perhaps best remembered as Stalingrad. Service, in his remarkable biography, describes Stalin's penchant for paranoia at this time. Quote, Stalin passionately believed that the conspiracies were ubiquitous in Russia. When an adequate supply of munitions did not come through in September 1918, he howled treachery to Lenin. To Stalin's way of thought, there always had to be an agency of deliberate malevolence at work whenever things went wrong. Traitors had to exist, even in the Bolshevik leadership. End quote. Traitors in the army were dealt with in the harshest possible terms. Stalin was seen as a complete law unto himself, and, in the chaotic era of Russian civil war, life was very cheap indeed. Deserters were shot by firing squad and public executions. Stalin proudly reported that, quote, future acts of treachery have been made less likely, end quote. At the same time as being ruthless, Stalin was capricious, turning on a dime, constantly threatening his resignation or demanding that others resign when they fell out with him or refused to carry out his orders to the letter. This tactic of threatening to resign at a moment of weakness, only to be persuaded to stay, as indispensable, is an interesting one. Stalin would continue to use it even as he consolidated power in his own hands later on, and, while you can argue that it's strengthened his political position, part of me feels like he's just venting frustration in a dramatic hissy fit. Clearly he was a man who could not stand criticism, and he was hypersensitive when he felt his authority was being undermined. I feel like at this stage in his life, Stalin was an autocrat without absolute power. He would only answer to Lenin, and the orders of the Central Committee towards him were regularly ignored. In a fluid, chaotic, wartime situation, he could get away with a lot more than under a lot less scrutiny than during peacetime. But the zeal with which he pursued violence, terror and personal control was unusual even for a Bolshevik. And although it may have made some of them uncomfortable, Lenin wanted to have him on side. He was far too useful to be discarded. Maybe he was just doing things that the more intellectual wing of the party would have found unpalatable. It was a time of war, after all, and hard men were needed. But historians, with the benefit of hindsight, can clearly see the template for Stalin's autocracy being laid in his time at the front. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please rate us or write us a review on iTunes, visit the website, email me with comments, questions or concerns. I do this in all my free and not-so-free time, and any encouragement is, of course, gratefully received. Next time, we'll see Stalin through the Civil War. We will then see how he positioned himself to become Lenin's successor, outmanoeuvring his political opponents and consolidating power, the transformation from the young revolutionary to the autocrat. Until then, I hope the world is kind to you. Our theme music is The Spirit of Russian Love by Zinadia Trokai, and you can find her stuff at costat.bandcamp.com. That's K-O-S-T-A.bandcamp.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode.